Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. He is the president of the Anti-Cruelty Society of Chicago, Tracy Elliott. How are you today? I'm well, Steve. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How's the shelter scene doing in Chicago? Are the well, shelters, particularly Animal Care and Control, our municipal yeah. facility, right. filling up again? I've read that yes. it is. Yes, that is right. And all across the country. But Chicago is its own, you know, sheltering and animal welfare ecosystem. And CECC is, of course, an absolutely critical piece of that ecosystem, as is the Anti-Cruelty Society, as the largest open admission private shelter. Um, so we are struggling. I will be honest with you. There are a lot of animals. So intake is up and uh, adoptions of dogs, not necessarily of cats, adopt- adoptions of dogs are down. If we compare to the last sort of normal year, you know, 18 and 19, maybe before the pandemic, all of our numbers are we're getting more animals in and we're getting fewer animals, fewer animals into homes. Hmm. And so that is the perfect storm um, for us. And we are all struggling. Some are struggling mightily. Some are not as much. But, uh, you know, we have an animal care coalition in the city uh, that I think is now 13 or 14 different organizations. If you talk to people on the street, Tracy, and people on the street stop me all the time. And if you read some publications in the popular press, they say those pandemic puppies are being given up even though the height of that now, if you think about it, was a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Is is that really true? Well, we're hearing that from other places around the country. Uh, we are not seeing that as much as we're seeing, you know, just generally higher owner surrender because of economic circumstances, particularly housing. So are some of those dogs pandemic dogs? Absolutely. They were in a situation when they adopted the dog where they had um, pet-friendly housing, uh, for one reason or another, they've had to move, and the cost of pet-friendly housing has uh, gone up tremendously. If you have to pay a, a pet deposit, they've gone way up. If you have to pay an extra pet rent, that's gone way up. Um, and a lot of people are not in the position to do either. Um, so it's mostly economics. Uh, it's also, I think, uh, on the adoption side that people are not as committed as they used to be in general to uh, rescuing animals through shelters. Uh, I think more and more folks are going to breeders to get, you know, deluxe breeds, if you will. Um, Perhaps we have lost a little bit of the messaging that shelter animals are not broken. They're great dogs and cats and rabbits and everything else. They, They just need to be with a family. All right, and there's a that, lot we've lost a bit of that message. There's a lot to unpack there. So backing up a little bit to be clear, it's not that people are bored with their animal, don't nope. don't like their animal anymore, made a impulsive decision and now just as impulsively want or need to give up their animal. It really, well, some of those animals were adopted during the pandemic, it's not sure. that that is the issue, as some in the media report. It is, in fact, housing. As you describe, yeah. it's very difficult, whether you've had that pet forever or that pet is new to your home, fairly new, and was adopted during the pandemic, that's not the issue. The issue is not when you when that pet arrived in your home or how. The issue is 
finding a place to live with that pet that people can afford. And also, therefore, the economy would tie into all of that as well. And while the economy is going gangbusters for some of us, it's not the case for everyone. So the combination of all of that, and I would add one more thing, Tracy, if it makes sense to you and you'll tell me. The other issue is creating this perfect storm that so many people who wanted a pet now have one. Because during the pandemic, they went out happily and they got one. Maybe they got two. They just don't need or want an animal right now. That's right. I think you're exactly right, Steve. Some uh, foolish people get, did get two, and I'm talking about myself. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I think you're right. If you think about, and this is, I'm sorry to, to make this sound like an economic issue. It's not. But if you think about the cycle of people's lives with their pets, you get a dog or two, and they live 10, 13, 14, 15 years. And it isn't until then that you're in the market for perhaps a new you know, companion after they pass. Mm-hmm. That was my situation. I had two dogs pass during the uh, during COVID, and I replaced them with two dogs, right? But mm-hmm. I'm not going to be in the market now for another 10 years, I hope, at least. So I think you're right. We did have a bit of a saturation of the market during uh, COVID, which was great, right? We were so proud of the community for emptying our shelters and making it so uh, much easier for us to, to get through COVID. But you're right. Now there's, a, if you will, a saturation of the market. And And the other thing is that we know from data that's coming out, it's not published yet, that those folks who are acquiring dogs right now around the country, about 8 to 10% less of uh, of them than before COVID are going to shelters. In other words, a significant percentage of people are uh, are going to private um, sources for their dogs than before COVID. In other words, we're losing market share, if you want to talk about that. But that economic term translates into real suffering for animals who are, uh, you know, lagging behind in in shelters. And a shelter, while we do everything we can to make it the best place for an animal, it's not a good place for an animal. There's too much stimulation. There's not enough human contact. They need to be in families and homes. Which is the wonderful thing about fostering, which I was just talking uh, recently with John Landecker uh, about. And his producer is going to be a foster failure, at least that's the hope, uh, meaning that he's fostering, in his case, a dog. And incidentally, a dog that looks like, you'd you'd say, that's a pit bull, uh, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure is just a mixed breed dog, which we'll we'll return to because I want to talk about that more. Uh, And... He fell in love, his fiance fell in love, and now yes. they're likely going to keep the dog, which is a great thing. But fostering is wonderful. Have the foster, yeah, have those numbers gone down? They have. There was a huge uh, surge of fostering during COVID because people were home, right? So, hey, why not, um, you know, have an animal come in since I'm going to be working from home? There were lots of failures, uh, <laughs> me included. Yes. Two, two, two foster failures. But a lot of people, uh, you know, did return the animals after they have to go back to work and things, and they can't uh, foster because uh, they're working. Um, or they think they can't. Actually, we can make it possible for them to do so. So, yeah, the foster numbers have gone down. Almost, We still have hundreds of animals in foster. If we, if we didn't have the foster network, you know, we have no room in our huge building, as big as our building is, we have no room right now for those animals who are in foster. They... There's no space for them, so those foster 
folks are just, they're saving a lot of lives. They're saving a lot of lives. And multiply that with all the Chicago, Chicago area, including suburban shelters. That's where, right. Yeah, there are so many foster families. I mean, imagine That's how right. many animals wouldn't be here. Oh, my goodness. I can't imagine. Yeah. yeah I can't imagine. Yeah. I want to talk about something the Wall Street Journal said as an explanation as well for people giving up their animals and something you've alluded to a couple of times, how things are changing and millennials, interestingly enough, are not going to shelters like one might think and how their parents actually viewed shelters. Interesting, interesting stuff with Tracy Elliott, president of the Anti-Cruelty Society of Chicago. We will be back on WGN. Tracy Elliott is the president of the Anti-Cruelty Society of Chicago. I I hope you appreciate how I say the word president. I do. It makes me feel almost important. Yes. Well, you are very important. And being a part of a coalition of animal shelters, which nearly every, every shelter in Chicago is a part of, that must be important, too, because now you're communicating with one another about what the common concerns are, the common problems are, and uh, in, a, in a way, fixing at least some of those concerns and problems together. That's correct, uh, Steve. It's, uh, there was a coalition going on well before I was here, and in the, even in the profession that, that kind of dissolved after a period of time. I think you might have had a role in that. Yeah. And so for a number of years, there wasn't any kind of cooperation, formal cooperation. The organizations definitely cooperated, but not in a formal way. So the uh, this coalition started, I think, three years ago, and I, we're up to we're we're bringing on new members. I think we're up to fifteen or sixteen uh, shelters. There's still a lot of uh, organizations that are not yet involved, but we're working on that. And it is a, a way to share information, commiserate, frankly, which is helpful, but also come to solutions together. For instance, the Chicago Dog Campaign. You talked about a pit bull mix that looks kind of like a pit bull. We kind of we call those Chicago dogs. They're kind of blocky headed, big headed. They may be pit bull. They may be other things. But the coalition got a grant to do a marketing campaign about Chicago dogs, and you know they're kind of big headed dog. That's what is clogging up every shelter is that type of dog because they're uh, they're bigger. Although not always. Sometimes here we call them nitty pitties, really cute little dogs, but they still have blocky heads. But the coalition was able to get together and do some some uh, marketing about Chicago dogs. We had a Chicago dog week, I think, uh, where we all really emphasized that kind of uh, type of dog. And uh, we're also trying to figure out together some additional solutions to placement, to the placement problems we're having. And the housing. Again, we have a problem at both ends of our pipeline, right? There are more animals coming in and fewer animals going out. Um, So we're we're working on both ends of that problem. All right. So you spoke about these dogs that we're calling at the moment Chicago dogs. They are the most common dog, I would argue. So if you ask the American Kennel Club, the most popular dog in Chicago, they say the French Bulldog, followed by the Labrador Retriever, and there are a lot of those, for sure. Yeah, having said that, I believe the most common dog, actually, is a dog that they would not even consider, because it's not a purebred dog. It's the mix that look like those blocky head dogs that we're calling Chicago dogs. Many call them pit bulls, but in fact, they are just mixed-breed dogs is all they are. So it's interesting right. to me, 
and unfortunate to me that those dogs, mixed breed dogs, they're not cool by at least some uh, accounts. Where the doodle dogs, the labradoodle, the the, the, the what are some others? The the um, the I'm trying to think of them, and I should know all the doodle names. But yeah. the golden doodle, the doodle doodle, whatever those dogs are yes. are are increasingly popular, and they are. Only mixed breed dogs. Now, a part of that is that they're presumed to be hypoallergenic. The Correct. fact is that they may have some properties which some people with allergies can live with, depending on the individual dog. But by and large, as a group, they're not really hypoallergenic. Right. That's a misconception. Right. So, right. do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I I'm going to zero in on the word you used, uh, cool. Um, I do think I live in Lincoln Park and very close to Oz Park, and I take my dogs over to Oz Park every day. And I have two mixed breed shelter dogs. Um, they both kind of look like a breed, but they're definitely mixed breed. And what I see at the park uh, are some nice shelter mixes. Um, primarily, however, they are either these you know luxury um, mixes with doodles and other things like that, or purebred dogs. Even, here's the interesting thing, Steve, many, many, many large purebred dogs. Um, and, of course, one of the things that we're told about these these Chicago dogs is, well, they, they don't do well in the city because they're large. That's just not the case. Um, it might be for an individual dog. There may be a, an individual dog that cannot stand to be in an apartment or whatever, but I'm telling you, if you come to Ospark, you're going to see the proportion of large dogs to small dogs about 75% to 25%. So people do have large dogs in the city. Um, they just happen to primarily be, you know, um, purebreds. My father, for instance, used German short hairs. We had German short hairs my entire childhood. There are six or seven of those at Ospark at any time I'm there. Wow. Beautiful, wonderful dogs. But they are a lot of energy, right? They need, they need, they have a lot of energy. They have a need to sort of hunt. So it's not as if people cannot accommodate large dogs. It's just that it's cool right now to have, you know, to pay twenty five hundred dollars or three thousand dollars for a, uh, for a, you know, a signature breed or a signature mix. And I'm not judging that, but I am saying we must get rid of the misinformation that the reason we're not getting rid of these dogs is because. People don't want large dogs in the city. They do, in fact, want large dogs in the city. We've just got to do a better job of having them consider, you know, these phenomenal dogs we have in all of the shelters all over the city. I agree. And and let me go one step further. I also think that for whatever reason, it's it's not necessarily planned marketing. It's marketing that kind of got bigger and bigger like a snowball does. Uh, yeah. greatly by the people who have these dogs. And yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you a story. So I went to animal care and control years ago after a dog of ours passed away. I was called in by a friend who at that time worked there that said, we have a litter that was just dropped off at our door of Australian shepherds. And mm-hmm. uh, they're puppies. So we went in, uh, my wife and I, and we sat down with the litter of puppies and the first puppy to crawl into my lap was the winner how can we Mm -hmm. walk away from puppies right so Mm -hmm. we said we want that one 
So, in fact, we got that one. And she had a very unique look about her. You might have met Ethel. That was her name mm-hmm. as she was older. But when she was a puppy, she looked almost like an African wild dog puppy with her coloring. It was right. so unique. And she had big blue eyes, which, by the way, stayed with her throughout her life. A wonderful dog. But as a puppy, we took her to the park across the street from our house. And she was just playing and running. And then there was another dog that came. It was a French bulldog and something. Um, and it was a designer breed of some sort. And, and the woman said to me, very proudly, oh, it was a puggle. It was a puggle. That's exactly what it was, right? Mm-hmm. And she said, I, she said, what do you have? Here's a puggle. And I said, yeah, I, I know that's a puggle. And she said, I paid, I don't know what it was, $5,000 for the dog, whatever mm-hmm. it was. Proudly, mm-hmm. she's saying, that's what I paid for my dog. What what kind of dog do you have and what did you pay? And I thought, well, <laughs> that's interesting. So I told her that I had a designer dog as well. I mm-hmm. have a new one called a King Daily Shepherd. Mm-hmm. I mean, she kind of looked like a shepherd, sort of, kind of, and... Mm-hmm. You know why I said daily, right? Mm-hmm, so, right. so anyone mm-hmm. in Chicago knows that. And he, right. you know, we had two that might have been king. You know, so right. so she right. said, "Really? I've never seen one like that before. A king daily shepherd." And she's jotting it down in her phone. And then I write a blog post about it later. And then I get a nasty email from her saying I was making fun of her. But the point is that. People do what they perceive sometimes to be right. the cool or trendy thing to do. And had there been right. really a King Daily Shepherd, right. people would have been run out, right. running out asking for one. Right, absolutely. Yes, I, you know, I get that. But um, I, I know that the shelter industry, with advocates like you in the media, at one point made um, rescuing cool. Right? Yeah. So we got to make rescuing cool again. All right. That's where we'll stop for the moment, making rescuing cool again. And uh, by the way, there's a big event coming up uh, that we'll talk about as well. When we come back with Tracy Elliott, uh, the president of the Anti-Cruelty Society of Chicago, which, by the way, is about to celebrate a big anniversary. We'll talk about that, too. Next week, Sandy Delisle will be here. She's the producer and the screenwriter of a new film called You're Out. You can stream the movie. It's it's a road picture uh, that she's hoping there's another road picture after that. It's like being Crosby and Bob Hope, right? The road to, and then the road to, and they had a road to somewhere else, right? Well, she wants the same kind of thing to happen with this movie. And I'll tell you, the movie appeared at Cannes Film Festival, so that's not bad. It's a comedy, and it's about two fathers who hope their kids make it in baseball at the college level. And a lot happens as they travel with their kids, including a dog they meet along the way who adopts them. And the dog looks like, well, a pit bull type dog. And lots of myths about pit bull type dogs are dispelled in the movie called You're Out. And that's next week. Tracy Elliott, president of the Anti-Cruelty Society of Chicago for... How many years are you about to celebrate the... No, I think I'm about four and a half at this point. No, oh, you mean no. the organization? Yes. Oh, well, yeah, not four and a half. Um, 125. 
So I was at an event you guys hosted, and I think that makes you older or about as as like Marshall Fields or as yeah. I mean, really, I mean, all of these Chicago institutions, many, I mentioned Marshall Fields on purpose because, unfortunately, they're not around as Marshall Fields today. But the Anti-Cruelty Society has endured, hasn't it? It has. We were founded at a time of, of probably the, the, not probably, the most significant growth period in Chicago's history. The city exploded no pun intended, after the fire. The way we rebuilt from the fire just just caused this economy and the population to explode, and also all kinds of phenomenal organizations were founded around that time. You know, Sears and, yes, uh, Marshall Fields, but also great not-for-profits like Hull House and others. And we're one of the survivors. A lot of those organizations have not survived, sadly. Um, but we're here, 124 and a half years on... on uh, the 7th of March next year will be exactly 125 years old, so we are in an entire year of celebration. Um, and I want people to understand that organizations in this country don't tend to survive for 125 years, you know, especially not-for-profits. There are lots and lots of pressures to try to run a not-for-profit organization. And, and the great thing about the Anti-Cruelty Society is we have been willing to change uh, depending on what the, what the community needs from us at the moment. Started out only concerned about the poor treatment of horses on the street. Well, the car came along and horses on the street disappeared. So then companion animals became the focus because Chicago's population was exploding and one of the effects of that was lots and lots of roaming animals, um, mostly dogs, but cats too, and there wasn't enough medical provision, so they started a you know veterinary service, and there was an ambulance service, so when a dog was injured or a cat or whatever was found on the street, we could rush them to our facility and treat them. So we've continued to grow and change and evolve as the community has needed us to do that with the mission staying the same. Um, we state it differently, but we believe that the best, you know, we, we believe in the best care for animals, period, whether they be horses, whether they be companion animals, um, any animal that needs our help, you know, we're here for. Um, we have a full veterinary hospital with, with nine vets, you know, and we are increasing our community provision of veterinary care significantly. That is one of the objectives of our, we call it the 500-day journey to 125. Um, we're trying to raise some money so we can get a mobile clinic down on the south side and We've already hired the veterinary staff that's required for that. We're increasing the number of patients that we serve out of our Grand LaSalle um, uh, location, patients from the community, not just our, our shelter animals, and there's many of those that need treatment as well, of course. So we're trying to look into the future. Okay, we've been here 125 years. We've served the community. What does the community need from us in the next 125 years, or at least the next 10 or 15 years? And we're doing a lot of work to try to make sure that we remain relevant and responsive to our community. A not-for-profit, a 501c3 corporation, is owned by the community. There is no stock, right? There's no owners. There's a board of directors that make sure that the organization is functioning properly. But really, the community owns not-for-profits. They are corporations that are, are created by the state 
that you're in to serve the public, to serve the, the community, to serve society. And so we want to be responsive to our owners who are the citizens of Chicago. Well, maybe the next committee is a group of uh, those that happen to be from Generation Z or millennials yeah. to talk mm-hmm. uh, amongst themselves and to come up with a plan mm-hmm. about how to reach out to the people that are their age right. uh, about the reality, mm-hmm. <laughs> not the perception, the reality of what's available through animal shelters, that these dogs right. or cats are not damaged goods. They're given up right. generally by people right. who, in fact, don't want to give up their pets, but right. but see no alternative. Or right. in some cases, who have passed away and no family member wants them. Correct. Those Correct. are the most common reasons. Uh, another right. big reason is behavior, and it's wonderful that you're mm-hmm. working now uh, with a veterinary behaviorist who can mm-hmm. give you advice there. And according to the Wall Street Journal story that I just read, behavior always was and remains uh, a significant reason for relinquishment. So That's it correct. doesn't mean studies have demonstrated. So there was one study that was done, I believe, in, in San Francisco, uh, where they looked at cats that were given up because they were not appropriately using their litter boxes. So Mm -hmm. these cats were easily trained back into the litter boxes, and once they were, once they got into homes, Mm -hmm. they stayed that way. Sometimes a little advice was offered by the behaviorist on board at that shelter. Everything was fine. And and oftentimes the reason why they didn't use the box was either a medical issue that was rectified and or... That pet parent just not understanding the needs, you know, for example, just a stupid, obvious example. If you have six cats in the house, having one litter box is not going to do the trick, obviously. Right. You know, right. so it was not that people made those mistakes on purpose. No. So, so in either which case, it would be interesting to have a group of people that were of the same age rectify the misconceptions and do some sort of marketing campaign to help people better understand what you said they, in fact, understood in my generation? Well, one, uh, that, that, we've done that to a degree, and we've found some interesting uh, insights. So you walk into, a, let's say pet stores are still part of our ecosystem. They aren't in Chicago, thanks to you and others, but let's say they are. You walk into a pet store, you see Fluffy, and you say, I want to buy that. And the person says, okay, great. Let me get her for you. Here, here's, you know, it's $1,000, and you pay $1,000, and you walk out of the, of the store, right? No one has asked you any questions about your financial situation. They haven't called your landlord. They haven't done anything. Shelters, on the other hand, uh, those who haven't figured out that this is really not beneficial, you walk in, you say, oh, I love Fluffy, and they start grilling you with questions. Do you have enough money to have fluffy, you know, do you have the right house? Do you have a fence? Do you have this? Do you have that? And you know what? Millennials are like, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not going to go in and be judged and have all these questions and get the third degree. So, you know, a long time ago, we proved empirically that an open admission process where you don't ask for someone's, you know, FBI and CIA investigation before you can uh, let them take an animal home, open adoptions are just as successful as those very, very you know, intrusive adoption approaches. I'll give you one funny example. The chair of the board who hired me at the Asheville Humane Society, who was probably one of the, if I, I want to come back and be his dog, right? 
he got rejected at the Asheville Humane Society years ago when he came in to try to adopt a dog. What? Because they said his house was not appropriate for the dog. Yes, he still laughs about it, but, um, you know, so we, we have to some degree um, been the authors of our own demise. We have to understand that when someone walks in the door and they don't look like us, they maybe aren't dressed like us, they don't have the same kind of house as us, um, that doesn't mean they shouldn't, they're not going to be a phenomenally loving pet parent. So we've got to open our doors, too. We've got to make sure, for instance, that we understand, well, first of all, do we have Spanish speakers in our in our uh, shelters? Because a huge part of our population now are either bilingual or only speak Spanish. Are we um, welcoming to different uh, ethnicities, to different, you know, economic classes? We've got a responsibility in the sheltering business, too, to, to stop being judgmental and selective. Because we, uh, one person said to me a long time ago, we were protecting animals to death, meaning we were being so picky about who could adopt that animals would die in the shelter or be euthanized because we didn't like the fact that, you know, Mrs. Smith came in and she was 70 and we don't adopt old people because they're going to die, you know, before the pet does. Well, that's just ridiculous. So... Part of this also is for us to be culturally aware and welcoming environments, and we're working on that at the Anti-Cruelty Society, and frankly, the whole profession is working on that. All right, there, well, was a, there was a survey done nationally of shelters of attitudes about race and things of that nature, and I'm telling you the shelter business did not do very well on that at all, so we're working on that. I want to so talk, I I wanted to, Tracy, too. we'll talk more about that when we come back. And perhaps you'll explain how you can suggest 70 is old, because I'm concerned about that, too. We will do that when we come (laughs) back with Tracy Elliott, president of the Anti-Cruelty Society, who has a big announcement about a big event coming up. Tracy Elliott is the president of the Anti-Cruelty Society of Chicago. I'll be very honest with you, Tracy. You are incredibly eloquent, and if anyone ever teaches, because shelter medicine is now spoken about and taught at veterinary schools, as there is now a specialty for shelter medicine among veterinarians, which is a great thing. But aside from teaching the medical stuff and the behavioral stuff, all of which is not only important but necessary, it would be, I think, interesting to have someone like you come into a veterinary school uh, to talk about the kinds of things we're talking about, and right. no one does it as eloquently as you do. I appreciate oh, thank you. that. I appreciate that. Well, we, you're, you've been on, you've been on for all these segments because I keep. I thought originally we would talk for about ten minutes or so, and here we are, well into this conversation, and it's a great conversation to have. Before we run out of time, though, I absolutely do need to talk about something called pour your heart out. I, I, I do that every time I talk to you, but that's not what you mean by this event. That's right. Well, it's a great name for an event because that's what we all do in this profession, right? And those of, those, of, those of you who are allies, we do pour our hearts out for these animals. So we have a wonderful event it's called Pour Your Heart Out. It's a wine, beer, and cocktail tasting fundraiser. We also have non-alcoholic beverages for those who would prefer that. It is uh, Thursday, September 28th from 6 to 9 p.m. at Venue West. You can buy tickets and get more information at anticruelty.org backslash poor, P-O-U-R. Fun event, um, lots of great food, uh, lots of great uh, libations. There's a silent auction. There'll be entertainment. 
and this year we're going to have puppy playtime. And I mean, that's always the most important and, and uh, popular thing at any event. So it will help us um, get through this crisis of overpopulation. Um, we impact about 20,000 animals a year. If you also count all the animals that we feed and help and help their families in the community, which is growing, a growing part of our work is getting out in the community and helping people take good care of their animals so they don't come to the shelter. Um, so it's a, it's a great event. And it's a lot of fun. It's not a formal, you know, uh, event. You you can come in, you know, fun attire, cocktail attire, uh, and have a good, have a very good time. And so the things that this will support uh, are community education programs, which we just talked about. You know, we were the first organization in Chicago in the 1930s in the schools teaching uh, humane education, and we're still in the schools, and we're still working on those programs. Our low-cost spay-neuter clinic is really growing, and our reduced-fee veterinary services are really growing. We need more money for that. We still do pop-up pet food pantries every month. We have given over a million meals uh, in, since the beginning of the pandemic, um, a million pet meals. Amazing. Emergency Amazing. pet boarding for people who have to go to the hospital or they have some other crisis and they don't have anywhere to bring their animal. We can care for those animals uh, and uh, help with that. Um, we have several senior citizen programs. We talked about, oh, by the way, the definition of old, Steve, is anybody who's 10 years older than you are. Right? <laughs> well, so, then that would make 42 old. Right, exactly. Um, but we do have a number of programs. Senior citizens make wonderful pet parents, right? It is such a win-win. It helps their health outcomes. It reduces loneliness. So we want senior citizens to have animals. And we in fact, there was there was a campaign some number of years ago to adopt seniors with seniors, senior pets yes. with senior citizens, yes. which I loved. Yes, absolutely. And then finally, um, I wanted to mention this because you did. Uh, we have a behavior helpline. So if you're having behavioral issues with your animal, I don't, it doesn't matter if you got it from us or not. You can call us, and we will send you, get you to resources that can help you. It's hard to give specific advice, although we will give some suggestions. Uh, without obviously observing the situation, but we will point you to resources. Um, if you're looking for a behaviorist, we can, um, can point you to those resources. Uh, there's a lot of help online, uh, so we have that helpline as well. All right, so once again, the event is when? Uh, September 28th? September 28th, 6 to 9 at, at Venue West, which it's, is a really, really great venue to have an event. So yes. We would love to have you come. It's called Venue West, and frankly, I'm looking up the address for that to help people I, out. Yeah, thank you, because I don't have the address. Okay, um, so I will, I will, I will, while I look it up, this event uh, is, is very important to the Anti-Cruelty Society, and it it's fun! So it's also a fun thing to do. Uh, do you go online to get tickets? Can you just show That's up? Right. Uh, best thing to do is go to anticruelty.org, O-R-G, backslash poor, P-O-U-R. That will give you both all the information and a portal to buy a ticket. All right. And the address of Venue West, that's in the Fulton Market area, 702 West Fulton Market Street. And uh, I'll be there, so I hope to see you all there. 
Uh, Tracy Elliott, a, a great conversation to have, and I think an important one, because so many myths still need to be, maybe more than ever, as you point out, need to be busted regarding shelter animals. And also, thank you for bringing us up to date on the Chicago shelter scene. Thank you, Steve. I was so excited when in the U.K., just recently, they banned shock collars or electronic collars used for dog training. That was great news. However, a former assistant to Margaret Thatcher has come along saying, no, 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 I can fight this. Uh, Ian Gregory runs a public relations firm called A to Z Advice. He's created Facebook pages, and he's encouraging public officials and working very hard to do it, and is funded apparently by the shock collar industry, what a surprise, to fight the proposed ban. He says that his logic is that dogs without shock collar training will attack the sheep they otherwise would protect and herd. I've not heard of anything like that before, but that's what he says. Also, shock collars are used to keep cats indoors in the UK. The thought is that life is kinder indoors, so the cats are shocked to keep them inside. Really? How about closing doors? You know, I I don't get it, and I don't buy what this guy is saying, because here's what we know. We know that dogs trained with shock collars are likely to have collateral damage. That can be physical damage that can mar them for life, not to mention psychological damage that can mar them for life. There is no benefit to training with a shock collar when we know today study after study after study around the world has demonstrated that positive reinforcement training yeah of course it's kinder it's the right thing to do but it's also more efficient if you know anyone at all in the uk tell them to contact their member of parliament we'll talk to you next week bright and early on wgn